Hello, and thank you for joining our Journal Club in Oncology podcast. The Journal Club podcasts are developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge, and are part of a continuing medical education series. The CME-CE activity is supported by educational grants from GlaxoSmithKline and from Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech Incorporated. In this episode, Dr. J. Leonard Lichtenfeld and Dr. Otis Brawley will discuss special considerations in oncology and COVID-19. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash clinical oncology. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Lichtenfeld is the former Chief Medical Officer of the American Cancer Society in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Brawley is a professor in the Department of Oncology at Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, Maryland. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Let's begin our discussion. Uh, Dr. Brawley and Dr. Lichtenfeld, thank you both for joining us today. Um, COVID-19 has affected all of us, but its impact is most acute for those with other conditions such as heart disease or cancer. A prospective cohort study from Lee et al. Um, published in Lancet Oncology underscores this. It compared adults in the UK coronavirus cancer monitoring project to a parallel group of adults with cancer who did not have COVID-19. Of the 1,044 patients in the coronavirus monitoring project, nearly 31% or 319 patients died. Um, The cause of death of nearly 93% was listed as COVID-19. Increasing age was significantly associated with all-cause mortality. But COVID-19 appears to have a different trajectory for patients depending on the type of cancer that they have. Patients with hematologic cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, developed more severe COVID-19 compared with those with solid tumors. Leukemia patients had significantly increased mortality rate compared to the others. Also, those with hematological cancers who had um, recent chemotherapy also had an increased risk of death while hospitalized with COVID. Um, Dr. Brawley, what do you think of this increased mortality risk and um, what the study is showing us? Hello. This finding actually is not surprising at all. What you actually see are people who have diseases of their immune system, leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, are having problems in handling this virus more so than people who have diseases that are of other systems. Now, the one thing I would caution you on is this is a disease that we didn't know about in January of this year. Uh, The people in this paper were people who got this disease in February, March, and April. We are better at treating people who have coronavirus today than we were just five or six months ago. So we are likely to see improvements from what we have here, but the basic pattern that people who have a cancer of their immune system are more likely to do badly if infected with COVID, I I do believe is still true. And we are still seeing that. Dr. Lechtenfeld. I agree with Otis and his comments. You know, as he mentioned, we did not know much about this virus back, very little in this country in January. We started to learn about it in February, and we were very concerned and shared that concern about high mortality rates. 
But let's not forget that when this virus first started in Wuhan, patients with cancer did exceptionally poorly. Um, and as is pointed out in this particular study, um, there has been some disagreements. You know, the, the, the conclusions are not uniform among all the studies. So in Wuhan, for example, lung cancer patients did exceptionally poorly, number one. Number two, patients with cancer, period, whether it had been recent treatment or long-term treatment, still had significant increased risk of poor outcomes, whether that be severe complications from the virus or actually death. So this is, uh, once again, we have literally hundreds of thousands of studies about coronavirus hitting the airwaves, so to speak. Uh, we're going to continue to learn a lot more. And yes, I agree with Otis. We have learned uh, much more about uh, treating this disease. Mortality should decline. One final comment, and I think it was important to bear, bear in mind in this study, was that they commented that some of the people with cancer may have taken exceptional precautions so they didn't get in the hospital in the first place which may account for some of the differentials. So perhaps lung cancer patients were strongly encouraged to increase their isolation and the protection because of the risk that had been seen in China. We still have a lot to learn, and this data is going to be in flux and looked at many times going forward. It's very interesting. The other point that really sticks out in the study is the association between chemotherapy, particularly uh, intensely mitosuppressive treatment regimens, as they put it, for leukemia as a possible contributor to their worst uh, trajectory. Um, what do you think of that? Let's start with Dr. Brawley again. Well, it, it actually makes sense, uh, although this is a very interesting disease. You know, many people who die from this disease die from a, a cytokine storm, which is their immune system really just exploding and, and providing lots of stimulants. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the immune system of people who have leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma is already quite damaged. And then when we damage it even further with chemotherapy, and then you have this uh, other problem on top of it, we're still going to have to learn a great deal about this disease. This is an immune problem, the virus to begin with, and these are people who have already an immune problem. Mm -hmm. Dr. Lichtenfeld. Not, yeah, not to mention that, um, you know, one, one of the concerns we had in the beginning and the onset of the virus was that we're patients with acute cancer conditions, and leukemia certainly qualifies as such. Lymphoma may myeloma usually has a much, a little bit more chronic, less acute presentation. But, you know, patients with leukemia are pretty sick when they present and, um, and early in their course. So not only are they immunocompromised, as Otis has mentioned, but they're also quite ill. And that, in, in addition, uh, is, a, um, is a risk factor, you know, for this disease, for COVID. Uh, not to mention one of the interesting factors is the patients who reportedly in the study had a lower incidence of mortality or difficulty, the prostate cancer patients, the breast cancer patients, for example, um, they tend to be older. Uh, and, uh, you know, this COVID, one of the risk factors for COVID is age. So there's a whole, you know, there's a whole combination, there's a whole series of things that are in flux here that have to be teased out. And once again, I come back to the comment I made earlier. As we go on, we're going to continue to learn much more about it. Look, what Otis mentioned about the, the compromised immune system. What about patients that get immunotherapy? Do they do better or do they do worse? And I will tell you that there have been conflicting reports in that regard. And yet those are patients who nominally uh, have their immune systems, shall we say, revved up a bit. 
Uh, they one of the, the risk factors for immunotherapy include uh, increased immune surveillance, internal immune surveillance. Uh, how are they going to fare? And and we again we don't know the answer. So that's the other end of the spectrum that we're discussing here. You know, the people who do well with this disease seem to be able to develop a lot of antibodies and antibody response very early on, very early on in infection. And uh, that's why if convalescent plasma actually does work, that's the reason why it works. And that's when it seems to be most effective. And we're still trying to figure out if convalescent plasma works, by the way. Uh, but it's people who get it early in their infection, having large amounts of antibody. So you're, you're talking about a person with, uh, in myeloma, they have a cancer, a disease of the very cells that make antibody. Uh, in uh, leukemia, lymphoma, again, a disease of their immune system. Uh, these are people who can't mount that early immune response when viral loads are actually very low. And the people, of course, who do very badly end up amount, uh, mounting a huge immune response later when viral loads are very high. And then that's when they get into the cytokine storm and other problems. Not to, not to mention, if I can add to that, that there are a lot of perturbations of the immune system that go on with COVID. So, for example, um, uh, at the AACR meeting, there was a commentary about interferon, the lack of interferon production in COVID. Uh, and the possibility of providing interferon, even with a nasal spray early on. There was a study apparently that was ongoing in, in the UK. Uh, the outcome of that I, I'm not familiar with, although other studies more recently showed interferon did, uh, infusions did not make a difference. So um, the, it'll be interesting to see with uh, some of the monoclonal antibody studies that are coming along, what the impact is going to be in the general population. We certainly heard about a patient of one, experience of one with our president, uh, but the real interesting question is what does happen, uh, as Otis, again, is alluding to, if we provide an artificial boost to the antibodies early on in the disease, will that make a difference in outcome for all patients and specifically for patients with, with cancer? And, and let's also talk about vaccines, because that compromised immune system may, may affect, number one, the ability of a patient to get a vaccine, and number two, a cancer, a cancer patient specifically, and number two, what's the what's the uh, impact? What's the outcome? Will that that will that vaccine have the same response in a patient not only again with cancer but other serious chronic illnesses? Will the responses be the same as they are in the general population? We simply don't know at this point. You, you bring up a really really good point. The vaccines may have uh, efficacy for people with solid tumors, but not certain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. hematologic malignancies. I'm also worried about the vaccines, by the way, in people who have other immunologic problems like uh, rheumatoid arthritis or any of the uh, uh, numerous immunologic diseases that we see. And, and adding on to that, we're using new technologies. So there are some vaccines out there that are using the more traditional type of, you know, killed virus type of approach, not here in the US, most of them are new technologies. Are they going to, how are they going to work? And will, if they rely on the ability of an immune system by giving a, a sort of an artificial stimulus, not the traditional stimuli that we use with vaccines, but we use an artificial stimulus, will these same patients with leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, blood dyscrasias, 
will they be able to have an effective immune response? And we simply don't know. What What are you seeing in your clinics right now? I mean, um, with specific uh, therapies, are you seeing, you know, how your patients are being affected by COVID who are already on specific therapies? I mean, are you seeing it at the clinic level? Well, you know, we went through a period of time when uh, the clinics were closed down. Uh, everyone didn't want to come to clinic because they were afraid if they came in the hospitals or doctor's offices, they would get coronavirus. And then those of us who were doing the treating didn't want to treat patients because we want to reserve all of our PPE for taking care of people who had coronavirus. That period has ended right now. And we're, most clinics are at about 90, 95% of the capacity that they were at prior to COVID. Hasn't gotten all the way back, but it's getting closer and closer. Now we're worried about the next wave. And we're worried about more and more people getting sick with coronavirus. And again, uh, just totally overwhelming the hospitals. It's already happening in, in, you know, already in mid-October, we've heard about some areas in Wisconsin, some areas in, in the Midwest where hospitals are just overwhelmed. Uh, I just heard that there's 14 uh, intensive care beds open in the entire state of Utah as of the day before us uh, recording this. Uh, we're going to have to stop a lot of our major things in oncology. The bone marrow transplant is gonna to have to slow down in those areas. Uh, some of our intensive chemotherapies that cause a lot of people to have very low white counts really ought to be postponed. Uh, we're, get, we're getting into problems again as we go into this wave of more and more people uh, getting coronavirus. Uh, but as you asked the question, over the last couple of weeks, it's been pretty normal. And, and we move on with uh, as COVID uh, ebbs and flows. Um, getting back to the clinic, since many cancer therapies are infusion treatments, um, it begs the question, as COVID-19 disrupted that? And you, know, you more or less just kind of answered that, but can we talk a little bit more? What are some workarounds to that, or are there? If I may, uh, you know, there, there were a lot of changes that happened in treatment early on with regard to cancer. Remember the American Cancer Society, um, and I take some responsibility for this decision, decided to tell people not to get screened for cancer. So we've seen a huge fall off in the number of patients newly diagnosed with cancer. And, um, as, and, and again, coming back to what Otis's comment uh, just, just made, I call it actually a stepladder effect. We've got an effect. We've gone through one level. Now we've boosted to the second level. We're boosting to the third level. I don't. It's not come and go and come and go and come and go. So the same factors that concern consumers, concern patients in the beginning, are going to concern consumers and patients now. Uh, the oncology community responded pretty dramatically with trying to shift to telemedicine, with reducing unnecessary studies. Uh, with trying to imp and, and change treatments. It was fascinating to me because, uh, and, and, and I don't mean in a negative way, docs and respected groups came together and made decisions about what was reasonable to do under these circumstances. What was a truly elective surgery? What was a more urgent, what was an emergent surgery or treatment for that matter? They helped to make those, those decisions and those triage decisions that had to be addressed. 
they also looked at maybe we could do our treatments better. So maybe for one with breast cancer, uh, we could go ahead uh, we could go ahead and, and give oral therapy for people who had hormone sensitive disease uh, or had DCIS. We could delay their treatment and delay it safely. So those kinds of adjustments were made. Shifting to oral treatments instead of uh, instead of intravenous treatments. Some places even went to home treatments, which there's discussion about the safety of doing that. So workarounds did occur. What was also interesting, I think, is really important, um, and this is something that Otis and I know. Uh, I know Otis holds it dear to his heart, as do I. Sometimes we have to think about what we need to do as opposed to what we might like to do. Sometimes we have to focus on what the evidence shows us has to be done. Versus that extra PET scan that somebody say, hey, that's a nice idea. And by the way, costs substantial amounts of money. So in every, in every serious situation like COVID, there's a silver, there is a silver cloud. There are beneficial things that come out of it. And then we're more prepared going into this phase about concentrating on what we have to do, perhaps more so than what we would normally do or like to do. Yeah, you've seen some innovations, for example, in people who need injections like Luprolide or some of the colony stimulating factors. Uh, many clinics have literally started drive-through injection clinics. You, ju you just drive up with uh, the patient in the car and the nurse comes out and gives the injection. Or sometimes the patient just goes inside for just a quick second to get the injection. Uh, in terms of infusional therapy, most of the infusional therapy is back to where it was pre-COVID. However, we're very concerned that as COVID increases and more and more patients end up in the hospital with coronavirus and our clinics are overwhelmed by coronavirus, we're very concerned that the infusional therapies are going to have to decrease and, and go down. And as Lynn said, there are sometimes oral medications, uh, Zolota instead of 5-fluorouracil that you can substitute, uh, but uh, only, in certain, uh, only in certain diseases, only in certain regimens. What I found interesting, there are two things I found interesting. One was when the newspaper reporter called me early in the pandemic and talked about these drive-through injection therapies and thought it was a, a, a breakthrough national story. It was a local <laughs> newspaper. They thought they had something that was wow, this is, our, look what we're doing in our community. I had to share with them that uh, they were not alone. There were even stories about uh, doctors' practices. I think it was actually a primary care practice that they bought a bank building because of a dry, already had a built-in drive-through that people could come and they could, could facilitate it. Um, the other thing that was interesting was how, uh, I mentioned the expert groups came together. Suddenly, all the, the people start saying, Yes, our recommendations are evidence-based. We can do this with less invasion, less inconvenience, less toxicity. And yes, it's evidence-based, which of course raises the question, if it's evidence-based, why weren't we using that evidence before COVID? But, you know, let's, let's take the good that we can, we can find today and, and move on. But it was, it was interesting, and not that it was bad, but evidence suddenly became different. Under the, under the stress and the strain. And I think that's really an important point. We have to, in medicine, we have to think long and hard about what we do and why we do. One of the, the things that Os and I talk about quite a bit, you need to have, if you're 65 years old and a woman at average risk, you need to have a mammogram every year and the answer is no. 
do you need to have a colonoscopy, uh, you know, to this year versus doing a stool test at home? And the answer is maybe this year you can do the stool test at home. So not just in cancer treatment, but in cancer screening, we have to think very, very carefully about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and do we have to do it given, especially given these particular circumstances? And I hope we, as a profession, um, that we, as oncology, oncology in general and primary care for that matter, pay very close attention. At the same time, make sure the patients who need care can get in to get it and get it safely. We don't want to delay care uh, unnecessarily. And that brings, brings us to another point. Um, talked about this, the silver lining of, of really looking at what patients need versus what may want to be done, but a not so silver lining or a cloud could be a, a JAMA paper, um, it was a research letter um, that showed that screenings are down. That to me pretends that there's going to be a long-term effect of people delaying screening or just being afraid to even go. Uh, so Dr. Brawley, could you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the um, concern uh, is uh, we have had dramatic, dramatic declines in the diagnosis of heart attacks, diagnosis of strokes, even diagnosis of diabetes, and of all the major cancers. And the paper you refer to notes that when, COVID, when coronavirus really hit, uh, we started having declines in the diagnosis of a number of cancers. There are some estimates that uh, the delay in diagnosis of cancer is going to lead to deaths as late as 2030. 10 years from now, we will have increased numbers of people dying from cancer because of delays in early detection that are occurring right now. And indeed, I believe the coronavirus is going to be with us well into at least the first quarter of 2022. And so we're going to have some impairment in screening well into that area. Uh, well into that time, and it's going to affect us for more than a decade. Um, now, as Lynn already said, there are certain screening tests that we can put off for a time and certain screening tests that we need to uh, not put off. For example, colonoscopy every 10 years. If you delay it for an extra year or so, so what? Uh, but, and then the other issue is you run into People who have symptoms, keep in mind, I said heart attacks and strokes have been declining in presentation to hospital. People who have symptoms not coming in. I'm very worried. I'm worried much more so about the woman who feels the mass in her breast and doesn't feel comfortable to go to the doctor than I am the woman who delays getting a mammogram for six months or a year. I'm worried much more about the man who knows he's got stool, he's got blood in his stool and delays going to the doctor versus the person who's not getting a colonoscopy. Um, and so we really have to come to terms with the fact that the coronavirus is actually going to cost us lives, not just from coronavirus, but from cancer. We also, there's also been some talk about herd immunity and letting this virus rip. 
I want people to realize that if that happens, not only will people die from coronavirus, they're going to die from our hospitals being overcrowded with coronavirus patients and people with cancer, heart disease, stroke and diabetes not being able to get care. People who have things that are treatable or even curable will not get those treatments or those cures. Yeah, I fully agree with everything that Otis has said. Uh, I won't get into the herd immunity argument because we could spend an entire podcast on on that discussion uh, about uh, about that concept, and, and, and let's let's leave it at that. One of the things that is left unsaid: there have been some estimates about the impact of coronavirus on cancer mortality, and Otis and I have had this discussion, and we suspect those estimates are grossly underestimating. Uh, when we started this, we thought maybe it would be a two or three month delay. We're now into multiple months of this illness, and I agree, we're going to be in it for quite some time. So we will have continued delay in diagnoses of cancer because that's just human nature. People are, people are trying to put food on their table. They're not going to worry about getting a mammogram or, or colonoscopy, and, and the system is not accommodating to, to make that happen. But let's also use this as an opportunity to remind everyone, a lot of people have lost jobs. A lot of people didn't have access to care in the first place. A lot more don't have access to care today. We don't have a, a mechanism in this country, in many states, for example, uh, to help people get the health care they need. And when you don't have, you know, we don't have the funds to buy food or pay for your rent or your mortgage, you're not going to be very, uh, not going to think highly of going into a facility spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to get a screening test, not to mention the fallout from that. So we have a, once again, it's one of those issues that COVID has brought to the fore. A lot of people already struggled with it well before COVID, uh, but we're, many more are facing that problem today. So all of these things together are going to mean a continued decline in cancer diagnoses for this period of time, there may be an acceleration later on, but it probably is going to be acceleration of later stage disease. And that will mean poorer outcomes, poorer outcomes than would have been the case otherwise. We were making some progress. We were doing much better in the care of patients with lung cancer, spectacularly so when it comes to the treatment. Um, and, you know, we run the risk uh, of seeing some of that progress be dissipated as a result of this virus and its after effects. So you've really uh, touched upon uh, what was my last question, was the long-term impact of COVID on the cancer community. But how about the impact on cancer research? Yeah, the um, number of people going into the important clinical trials in cancer has gone down dramatically this year. Yeah, we're going to the uh, NCI uh, Clinical Trials Network normally enrolls about 20 to 24,000 people per year. It's probably going to be less than 10. Uh, uh, many universities, the laboratory shut down. Uh, the government was very good to us in that the government continued supporting uh, those people who weren't going to work in the lab, but many of the private funders uh, of research did not. So many, uh, there's been layoffs of technicians and, and people who run the labs, people who actually do the research. So that's, that means we're going to have to have 
uh, a time to mount up and restart things. Even where labs are working right now, they've gone into social distancing. So uh, people know that their lab time is from four in the morning until noon, and they have to be out by noon so that somebody can come work from 12 to 8 p.m. Uh, and so that actually inhibits the exchange of ideas that's actually really important. Uh, so uh, research has taken a hit. And as Lynn said, uh, we've had a 29% decline in age-adjusted mortality from 1991 to 2017, the last year that we have data for. Uh, I suspect that this year uh, is going to be the beginning of a slowing of that decline. If not, uh, we're going to even have mortality start going up. And research is a long-term investment. Uh, and we are, we're losing in that long-term investment because of the coronavirus. I'd add to that, uh, organizations like the American Cancer Society, which funded a substantial number of new investigators and always has traditionally, uh, wasn't able to do that this year, or this is the second part of the year, and won't be able to make commitments for next year. That's a huge loss because, as Otis has just mentioned, cancer research is a long-term proposition. It's not an overnight success. It's an overnight success that takes you 20 and 30 years to get to the point. I mean, that's what we've seen traditionally. We'd like to make it faster. And, however, the other side of the coin is that there have been efforts to do workarounds to make clinical trials more accessible in communities so people who can't travel, don't have to travel. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's been devastating. And the workarounds are not going, you know, right now are not going to supplant the losses we've had in, in clinical trial research. And as Otis has, has well described, the problems that have been well documented faced by investigators and laboratories uh, and lost research and lost time. So we will, again, pay a price today, and we're going to pay a price for years to come unfortunately. Good. I think that this has been a, a good Journal Club uh, podcast for us. Um, I want to thank you both uh, for joining us today. This was, uh, I think, a very, very good discussion. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash clinical oncology to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other oncology podcasts, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash oncology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits. Mm -hmm.